Two and a Half Admins, episode 152. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your usual Clara article plug is Linux and FreeBSD Firewalls Part 2, Alan. Yes. Uh, so it was last week or the week before we highlighted Part 1. This is basically, if you're having to do stuff with firewalls and you know one of Linux or FreeBSD, this article will help you translate those same concepts into the other, allowing you to now be master of both. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. So we have to do a bit of errata. Jim, last time you got a bit confused when you were talking about air tags and replaceable batteries. And we got, uh, you know, I think like two emails about this maybe. No, sorry, 200 emails about this. Yeah, so in short, I uh, I complained about AirTags not having replaceable batteries when uh, what I should have said was Bluetooth tracker devices typically not have replaceable batteries. AirTags are actually kind of the standout in the field. AirTags do have replaceable CR2032 batteries. I just mistakenly used AirTag as a generic, like, you know, calling your box of Puffs tissue Kleenex. And I should not have because Apple deserves kudos here. They stand out in the field. The original Bluetooth tracker device that I actually had in mind was Tile, which predated AirTags. Three of the five Tile models that have been manufactured did not use replaceable batteries. Two of those models are still for sale currently. Yeah, it's actually slightly interesting that it's Apple that that is a good one here, because usually they're definitely the ones that are about not serv- no serviceable parts in, in their stuff. Yeah, see AirPods, for example. Try changing the batteries in those. I think it might have something to do with the fact that, a little unusually for Apple, they really weren't the first to succeed in the market. Tile was. Mm -hmm. And like I said, you know, the original Tile and uh, most of the Tile models did not have replaceable batteries and were literally designed just to be e-waste in six months. And when Apple broke into the space, I mean, they were going to get a ton of velocity just from the fact that, hey, we're coming in with Apple's brand name and landing with both feet. But it certainly doesn't hurt to be able to offer a big feature that the existing gorilla in the space doesn't have. In this case, that was replaceable CR2032s. Yeah, so through gritted teeth, we have to say, well done, Apple. I'm not even going to grit my teeth. Well done, Apple, on that. Uh, However, still screw you, Apple, for making it so I can't use them if I don't devote my entire life to the Apple ecosystem. Same complaint I have with the Apple Watch, which I would love to have if it didn't require me to have an iPhone to actually work. And as long as that's the case, get bent. Let's do some news then. And the first is that Intel are going to stop making NUCs, but don't worry, Asus are going to take over the product line going forward by the looks of things. Yeah, so this is part of Intel shedding all these other business units they don't think they want anymore. I think it's a bit of a bad sign that Intel's kind of getting out of the business of innovating about anything. They have their chips and that's what they want to be their, their, have their focus on. But the NUC was interesting in the beginning as a way to kind of push some of the stuff Intel does, like the PCI specification and USB and and these things, and show that you know you could make a small computer that wasn't all proprietary, that was had replaceable parts and and standard parts, and that's what originally drew them to me, drew me to them, that I could buy basically a bare bones kit and then just stick in some RAM and an SSD and and have a machine, but there are much better options now. <laughs> so here's the thing I got to push back on, though, Alan. Uh, you said that this is a bad sign because you know Intel is getting out of innovating. They weren't really innovating with the NUC to begin with. I agree with you with the idea of a miniature computer with non-proprietary parts, many of which are replaceable or upgradable, is a great idea. But I was using those for a couple of years before Intel brought out the NUC. 
the big thing about the Nuck was it came from a huge name you'd heard of rather than, you know, some Chinese thing like Chotam that you hadn't heard of, or then, you know, later on uh, things like B-Link or what have you. The other thing that was notable about the Nuck really was how ridiculously expensive they were and how less third-party interchangeable the parts were than the existing competitors in the field. I actually had an Intel NUC for my daughter for a couple of years, and uh, then a stick of RAM in it went bad. And so I pulled the stick of RAM, I tested another machine. Yes, in fact, that stick of RAM was actually bad. And yes, in fact, the NUC ran with only the one remaining stick in it. So I confidently ordered another stick of RAM with the same clock speed, same timing, same everything, and put it in the NUC, and the NUC refused to boot. So I said, well, that one's on me. There is actually a hardware compatibility list, and I didn't bother to read it because I'm accustomed to, you know, as long as you get the timings and the, the CL right, RAM should work. So this time I went to Intel's hardware compatibility list, and I carefully found a module that was very directly listed as directly supported by Intel, and I ordered that. A week later it arrived, and the NUC still refused to boot with that stick in it. Now, some of you are probably thinking, oh, I bet it was a bad slot. No, it wasn't a bad slot. Remember, I tested the first stick in another machine, and it was bad. Also, I tried swapping slots in the NUC. It's not slot-related. The NUC would not boot either with the first sticker I bought or the second. So at this point, I was very, very annoyed. But my daughter needed her original amount of RAM for what she was doing, so... I went back to the hardware compatibility list and I found another, <laughs> another vendor, another model that was on the direct support list for my model of NUC and I ordered that one. And a week later, guess what? The NUC would not boot with that stick in it either, either solo or paired with the other one. It just flat refused to work with modules of RAM that was supposed to be on its own compatibility list. Now, every single one of those three replacement sticks of RAM that I bought for that damn thing worked just fine in another third-party, not NUC, but same form factor, little miniature PC, uh, Minis form, as a matter of fact, which is what Jane has now, has had for several years. Unlike the NUC, it behaves like a normal PC or laptop, in my experience, in that as long as you give it the correct timing and clock for the RAM, it just works fine. So I'm done with NUCs. Given the fact that they cost more to begin with and, you know, put me through that kind of hassle and... As we're probably going to get to later, they were kind of hard to find. I just, no. I don't see anything bad about Intel getting out of that business because they sucked at it. Well, it's part of a larger thing where they're just getting out of making machines, period. It sounds like they're not really going to make motherboards at all anymore. Those suck too. Have you ever used Intel reference motherboards? They're garbage. No, and they they're generally only exist as kind of a proof of concept. And the fact that they're not going to do that anymore has implications. I, I'm not saying they were good products, but... There was a lot of engineering work that happened that laid the groundwork for better products down the line. That's not going to happen now. Or rather, where it's going to happen, but it's going to be done by someone else. So I'm just saying this is a continuing trend of Intel in shitification. I don't think we have enough information to be able to confidently say this is Intel and shitification, because for all you know, the exact same number of Intel engineer hours are going to go into partner work with vendors, the way that Microsoft works with vendors to produce devices. And frankly, Microsoft has done a much better job of that than Intel has. Maybe Intel should take notes. It's funny you mentioned that RAM story because I've got an 8th gen i5 NUC and for some reason it's very picky about NVMe drives that it will boot from or even see in the operating system. It's very odd. Like It's got a SATA port in it as well and that's just no problem. Just any old cheap 
120 gigs SATA drive works, no problem. Well, yeah, AHCI is AHCI. Are you sure that, well, I guess it's HN, so it'll be NVMe. It's like the older ones, some of them had M SATA, which that port is all kinds of weird. <laughs> M.2 does not always mean NVMe. As, as Alan said, you might have M.2 SATA. Now, ideally, the M.2 SATA is supposed to be keyed differently than M.2 NVMe. M.2 NVMe has only one divider, you know, so you've got basically two pieces of chip that plug in. M.2 SATA is supposed to have two dividers, one on either side, so you've got three tabs that go in. The problem is, I have seen a lot of manufacturers on their M.2 SATA only slots, they don't key it properly. They key it with the NVMe capable and if you have a proper M.2 NVMe port, you can plug M.2 SATA in and it will work, and that's by design. But manufacturers do not always properly use the SATA-only keying on their port. And when they do that, almost any M.2 drive you buy will be NVMe, and it will fit in the port if they didn't key it properly to keep it out. But yeah, it won't work. Well, I might only be the half admin here, but I am aware of all of that. And this does officially support NVMe and has booted from some NVMe drives, but just mm. some other ones like a WD Black, it just would not see it. Hmm. And I, I don't know what that's about. I think it saw a Samsung one maybe, but not a WD. It's very strange. It just seems to be very picky. It, that just chimes exactly with what you said about the RAM. It's, some will work and some just won't. Yeah. Did you ever use some of the other weird form factors Intel came out with, like the compute stick? It was like an oversized Chromecast-looking thing. I always wanted one of them, but it was just really underpowered. It was like an Atom, and just I didn't really think it was worth it. It was Again, it was overpriced. Yeah, I've never been real big on the compute stick stuff. Right, I think I got mine cheap from like Overstock or something. Well, that's the thing. You said Nux are very expensive. New they were, but secondhand, you can pick them up pretty cheap now. But I think that's to Jim's point that they're secondhand because people didn't like them or didn't want them. Yeah. But haven't you got quite a few of them running in your house, Alan? Uh, just two quite old ones now, like second and third gen, so like Ivy Bridge and, and so on. They're not very new. The newest thing of the similar form factor I have is actually from Microsoft. It's the ARM Development Kit yeah. 2023 or whatever. Oh, yeah. Which is four plus four cores of ARM. What do we think about Asus, or Asus, whatever you want to say, as the uh, the partner that they've chosen here? That seems like a good shout to me, because uh, I've always been a fan of Asus motherboards, for example. Yep. Part of it had to do with when my friend ran a computer store, that was one of the main brands that he carried, and they did a really good job of providing a bunch of stuff, but I've just had great luck with them. Like The, the stuff's always high quality, the motherboards are very compatible, the manuals are actually well-translated. I've always been a big fan. As long as Intel handed it off to Asus's motherboard division and not their router division, it'll be a good move. <laughs> yes, that is always the thing, is that a brand name doesn't always mean the same thing. It's, it's the end of, You trust a certain team at the brand, not the whole brand. Millions of sensitive U.S. military emails were reportedly sent to Mali due to a typo. So instead of .mil, they were sent to .ml. Yeah, to be clear, this is not millions of sensitive emails being sent to Molly due to a typo. It's millions of sensitive emails being sent to Molly due to millions of typos, because it is unsurprisingly incredibly common for humans to just leave out a letter when they're typing things. So it's very easy to accidentally send an email to navy.ml instead of navy.mil, in which case, yeah, it goes off to Molly. Up until now, the .ml top-level domain has been managed by a Dutch entrepreneur who is basically 
Just kind of trying to keep track of that and repeatedly trying to get the U.S. government to take notice of the fact that all kinds of, in some cases, quite classified and sensitive information was getting broadcast out to his top-level domain. At that point, it wasn't really a big intelligence issue with Mali specifically because it wasn't the Mali government or organization getting it. It was this Dutch dude who was providing TLD services to the country. However, the country is taking over its own TLD now, and uh, that little shield will no longer be in place. Now, the big thing here is that the Department of Defense, as usual for the DOD, and as most of you know, I'm a Navy veteran, so this feels kind of familiar to me. The DOD is is trying to, you know, get its best foot forward by, you know, boldly declaring that it has been and is and will continue to provide extensive training to DOD personnel on not typing Navy.ml instead of Navy.mil or Army.ml. Also, as usual with DOD public proclamations, it just makes me want to violently face desk until I bleed because you're never going to get humans to stop doing that. The obvious answer is that any official DOD computers should be set up to just no route email trying to go to, to .ml. Not no route it. Send back a bounce. Like, I saw this comment on Twitter for someone who was like, is there no medium competent sysadmin in the entire Department of Defense that could add a rule to their mail server that says reject anything .ml? So the sender gets back a bounce saying, you probably didn't mean to send that there. And if you really do need to send it to the Navy of the country of Mali, here's some steps to, to do it. You're never going to get everybody's computer configured correctly, and you're never going to train people not to make typos. And so a rule on the mail server seems like the lowest possible amount of effort. Well, I think both belt and suspenders in this case, and I don't share yes, your for pessimism sure. for not being able to get that kind of a rule set up in, in the computers, because, I mean, this is 2023, man. They're, they're all centrally managed to some degree anyway, even if it's just mm. Active Directory. You can literally just push a rule by GPO that adds a route. Yeah. I shouldn't even be saying route. I should be talking about DNS. You literally just have to dump something in the host file that says, you know, .ml goes to 127.0.0.1 and you're not sending any email to anybody at .ml anymore. Yeah, although I think you more you'd want a mail server rule that rejected the mail when you tried to send it before it even tries to do a DNS lookup so that the user right. gets a bounce instead of all the mail queuing up in your mail server and bouncing around. In this case, an, an Outlook rule, yeah. which Outlook is, is what they're using and you can deploy those by GPO as well. Yeah, but what about when they accidentally use their personal account to send the emails? That's its own problem, and you have to address that separately. The, the .ml thing is the lesser concern at that point, because now it's the Hillary Clinton problem instead, where you're like, oh, well, you're not using you know, the correct equipment to handle this sensitive information. And that's the reason that's a problem, because when you're not using the correct equipment, you don't know that it's been configured properly to avoid these kinds of fuck-ups, and that's why you're not supposed to use whatever random laptop you've got lying around to do your G14 classified whatever. Well, it raises the obvious bigger question of why are millions of sensitive emails being sent in the clear? Doesn't the military use like S-MIME or something? Surely GPG, that's really easy. Yeah. But SMIME can be configured in Outlook and it's set up for exactly this kind of thing. Like, I understand not all the email needs to be encrypted because of the amount of pain that that causes. But if the emails are sensitive enough that you don't want them accidentally going to the wrong country or whatever, then maybe if it's that sensitive, it should be encrypted so that only the intended people can read it. 
obviously the real answer here is that the U.S. military just needs to move away from email and, you know, start doing everything on WhatsApp. Yeah. Yep. Problem solved. So yeah, the number they have, uh, since January of this year alone, 117,000 misdirected emails. <laughs> now, part of this problem will be one person sends an email to 10 people and makes the typo 10 times, I suppose. Maybe part of the other part is like, how is the Outlook not configured with the address book so it auto-completes people's email addresses mm. for you so you don't make this mistake? Don't get me started on the route of all the ways that Outlook doesn't work the way that you think it ought to work. Sure, But like, Please. in general, are, are people in the military manually typing in people's entire email yeah. addresses of like, yes, name at yes. branch.something.mil? Have you not met humans, Alan? Every possible way to do a thing and five more besides will always be used for any given task. Yes, but I just feel like I feel oftentimes that I'm like one of only people like me actually type out entire email addresses rather than always getting the email address from somewhere. Alan, haven't you ever stood over somebody's shoulder and watched them use a search engine? Yes, well, I've, I've watched them type their search into the URL bar back when the URL bar didn't default to doing a search. No, 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 but hang on. Haven't you ever watched someone start typing out a query? That query autocompletes in like three letters, but they keep laboriously hunting, pecking like 30 characters in to finish the sentence that they wanted to type to begin with, put three typos in there, and then finally click the submit search <laughs> instead of hitting enter when they could have just after the first three letters, just hit enter and be there. I mean, this is very common. Right. Well, I just, uh, basically my point was, I guess the autocomplete for the email address would help, but it seems that they don't. I just, I assume most people were lazier than that and relied on the computer to do it for them. That assumes they know how the computer works. Yeah. The other interesting aspect to this is that Marley, who you mentioned are going to be taking over from this uh, Dutch guy, is not like an ally necessarily of the US, given that <laughs> the, the Wagner Group has recently had a presence there, let's just say. Well, the article very specifically says Mali is a West African country that's allied with Russia. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, this is not like it's going to France or something, you know, which is a, a NATO ally. This is really bad news. To put a bit more clarity on that, Russia has been actively working on staging some of its transport to Ukraine via Mali. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. If you work in security or IT and your company has Okta, this message is for you. Have you noticed that for the past few years, the majority of data breaches and hacks you read about have something in common? It's employees. Hackers absolutely love exploiting vulnerable employee devices and credentials, but it doesn't have to be this way. Imagine a world where only secure devices can access your cloud apps. In this world, phished credentials are useless to hackers, and you can manage every OS, even Linux, from a single dashboard. Best of all, you can get employees to fix their own device security issues, without creating more work for IT. The good news is, you don't have to imagine this world. You can just start using Collide. Collide is a device trust solution for companies with Okta, and it ensures that if a device isn't trusted and secure, it can't log into your cloud apps. So support the show and visit collide.com slash 25A to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan, 
or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Mike writes, at least outside of enterprise usage, SSDs are commonly used in non-cache slash redundant scenarios, and they have plenty of smart attributes to self-indicate approaching pre-failure states. But the usual SmartD from SmartMon tools doesn't seem to monitor any of these, from what I can tell reading the source code. So what would you use instead, if you wanted to know about SSDs failing before I.O. failures pop up in ZFS, if anything? Well, I need to open this by using a line that I have been dropping rather frequently of late. In my career, I've seen hundreds of disk failures and a couple dozen smart failures, maybe. (laughs) I really think that the use of SmartD to detect failures before they happen is way overhyped and leads to a dangerous sense of complacency in admins who think, oh, well, it's okay. I'm watching smart, so I'll see problems before they show up. And it leads you to avoid things that you really should be focusing on, like, well, backups and testing your backups. As far as what I look at to get an idea of, you know, upcoming problems in SSDs, I do use SmartMon tools, but I don't use SmartD. I actually just check the age on the drive. The particular attribute will be different from one SSD vendor to another, but they all have what amounts to a write endurance attribute. And it can be read in terms of percentages of the expected drive life remaining. And um, the really annoying thing about that is you can generally reach all the way down to zero before you have hard errors in SSDs, unless you just get unlucky and one just fails overnight, which also happens. But you start seeing significant performance issues at around the 50% life cycle remaining mark. So I'm generally watching for my SSDs to get close to 50% uh, remaining write endurance. And at that point, I'm proactively replacing them because they have already begun to slow down and they're about to start disastrously slowing down performance-wise. Yeah, so there's a couple different issues. You know, on hard drives, I've had pretty good success with monitoring certain statistics, especially the replaced sectors and the pending sectors and so on. With SSDs, the biggest problem is every vendor uses completely different smart codes for the different things. And SmartD tries to interpret some of those, but some manufacturers reuse an existing value to mean something different. So, for example, on certain, I think, SanDisk SSDs, there are two different temperature values that show up, but one of them is not temperature. It's the remaining life of the SSD. And so SmartD will be like, hey, that SSD is running at like 90 degrees. That seems hot. It's like, actually, it means it has 90% of its life left. And the other number that says temperature, that's actually the temperature of the SSD, which is hot, but not that hot. (laughs) And so trying to use something like SmartD to monitor SSDs, unless all your SSDs in your entire fleet are exactly the same, which it can vary even between models of SSD from the same manufacturer, it gets really dicey trying to do much with it. And to Jim's point, Not all the drives actually give you just a percent of how much endurance is left, but a lot of them do. But that's kind of an average. And sure, if most of your cells are not worn out, you'll still be fine to keep going. And if all your cells are worn evenly, maybe they're okay. But when you start running out, that's when you get the problem. So so like in the, the comment here, there's the used reserved block count total. So how many sectors is it actually replaced with a whole new cell? Because that's where it's going to get a lot dicier with the garbage collection. And once that reserve set of cells goes up, that's when you're going to start really seeing the performance drop. And then, you know, like I said, some of the SSDs are only going to give you just, this is how many gigabytes I've written to the flash. 
go see the white paper on this drive to know how many before the drive's not guaranteed anymore. And it can get really dicey. And just the translations that Smart One Tool gives you are their best guess. And, you know, it tries to match some of them to known hard drives in their database. But don't take them as gospel for sure. Because sometimes it'll say temperature when it means something very not temperature. I'll also push back a little bit on the the comment that, you know, once you see that used reserve block count go up, that's when you really start seeing performance issues. No, it's when that reaches the threshold of how many reserve blocks there are in total. So once you're out of reserve blocks, then you're you're in big trouble. Right. But my point is I start seeing drastic performance issues on my SSDs when there are no reserved blocks used at all yet. Because the cells themselves get a lot slower to take and to reliably uh, read the charge levels once they start getting lower in write endurance. And that, in my experience, is enough to already cut your performance in half or further before you even actually replace a block from the reserve. Because you don't start replacing blocks from the reserve until things are actually failing. And in my experience, most people will never get an SSD to that point. Usually when people see an SSD failure, that failure is going to be overnight. Smart's not going to have any way of letting you know because it. what's generally going to happen is not a media problem. It's going to be the onboard controller coughs up a hairball, whether it's because of a firmware bug or whether it's because the actual part, you know, physically fails. You just go overnight from SSD work to SSD not work. When you're talking about the the media actually wearing out, in my experience, nobody's sitting through and waiting for that to happen. They're pissed off at it because it's way too slow and they replace it long before you get to actual right endurance exhaustion. It depends on your workload. I've definitely got SSDs all the way to zero where the SSD just went read-only. And our first indication there was a problem was the disk is read-only now. But it can really depend on the brand how soon they do that. Some of them maybe are a little um, presumptuous about that and would rather go read-only and make you replace it rather than risk getting to the point where you stored something and it didn't actually take properly. And it can really depend on the brand and the model and the type and so on. And really the workload. If you rewrite the same small number of sectors over and over again, you can maybe wear out a cell while there's other cells that are still fine. And it that yeah. can also depend on the firmware, how much the firmware decides to, I'm going to take this data that you've written only once and, and have kept, and I'm going to move it to one of these cells that's been beat up and move some data that you're constantly churning to the fresh cell and do all this shuffling under the hood. And that really slows things down because every time you write, it's like, oh, I got to go figure out where that actually is, or I got to lift stuff up and move it. And the erase block size is not aligned. So you're talking about moving blocks of 16 megabytes or more at a time, not just the sector you're trying to do. And the garbage collection stalls and yeah, the voodoo that happens under the hood in an SSD is evil. And so I definitely... And with Jim, that once it starts slowing down or having any signs of being halfway through its life, it's probably time to replace it rather than risk it bringing all your shit down. The issue with a small group of cells becoming very worn when the rest of the drive is fine, though, that's only going to happen on a drive with no wear leveling, which in 2023, you're going to be pretty hard pressed to find that in an actual SSD. Now, you'll absolutely get that in thumb drives. And uh, compact flash cards, you know, the really cheap types of, of flash storage frequently do not have any wear leveling. And yes, that's a real concern. But in something that you're actually buying like as an SSD SATA or, you know, M2 NVMe and putting in a computer and using as your, you know, root operating system drive, uneven wear is going to be pretty difficult to accomplish because you can't just request to rewrite the same sector over and over and over to make that happen. 
the drive zone we're leveling is going to defeat that. What you end up having to do is kind of come around it the back way and have some kind of bad misalignment of the where leveling algorithm and what things you're trying to overwrite. So you just keep managing to nail the same one over and over somehow. It also depends on the firmware and the firmware's willingness to move allocated sectors. Some firmware is more conservative and will not move data that you've written and it will only do where leveling around free space. And some of them do more of a log structure thing where they have a much more complex indirect table. The sector numbers that the SSD presents to the OS are always made up, but how those map to individual sectors versus 16 mega race blocks and so on can be very different between different firmwares. And it can depend on how much voodoo the SSD wants to do. And enterprise SSDs sometimes will do more or less of that voodoo and give you either a more pure experience or a more managed experience. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or your feedback. You can find me at jrs.com slash mastodon. You can find me at jrs-s.net slash social. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.